friends, I want to spend some time in introduction to this very wonderful book because there's many reasons for it, as you'll see as we go along. I approach the book of Revelation this time actually with fear and trembling, not primarily because of a lack of competence on my part, although that is self-evident, I'm sure. But many factors enter into this feeling. Rather, there's a lack on the part of listeners. You see, this is the 66th book of the Bible, and it comes last. And that means we need to know 65 other books before we get here. Most of you were not with us when we began in Genesis five years ago. And you need to have a background of a working knowledge of all in the Bible that has gone before. You need to have a feel of the Scripture as well as the facts that are in Scripture. And then there's another factor that makes me enter this book with a feeling of alarm. And the reason, again, is the climate into which we're giving these studies in Revelation. It's not primarily because of a skeptical and doubting age, although that's true, but it's because of these dark and desperate and difficult days in which we live and the failure of leadership in every field, government, the political leaders, scientists, educators. The educators today can't even control their own campuses. How are they going to supply leadership for the world? And then the military, and then the business tycoons, and then the actors. And you can hear them on these talk programs on TV, and you can just spend a little time, and that's all that you'll want to spend listening to them, and you'll find out they've got nothing to say. They do a lot of talking, but they say nothing that's worthwhile today. None of these groups and segments of our society have any solutions. Actually, they are failures in the realm of leadership today, because right now there is a lack of leadership. No one to lead us out of this moral morass or the difficult and Laocoon problems that have us all tangled up. And we're living in a very difficult time, friends. In fact, one of the worst times, I think, in the history of the church. And it makes it very difficult. And because of the grave danger there is in the world today, it was Dr. Harold C. U. Ray many years ago, that is after World War II, who wrote, I'm a frightened man. And he says, all the scientists I know are frightened, frightened for their lives, and they're frightened for your life too. Well, that's the picture of the day. I could give you many more quotations, and the church doesn't have any solution for the problems of this hour in which we're living, which makes it a very difficult thing. One of the things was the phenomenal growth in membership in the church, especially 
after World War II, and that only took place for a while. There was a phenomenal growth in membership from 20% of our population in 1884 to 35% of the population in 1959. That was the high point. That is, Protestant church members. And that would indicate the possibility of a church on fire for God. Then it had wealth, building tremendous programs. But recently, the church is beginning to lose. And today, it also is certainly not affecting the contemporary culture of this hour. We're living definitely in days like this. It was way back in December the 19th, 1958, that the late David Lawrence wrote an editorial on the mess in the world. And he went on to describe it, but even he didn't have a solution for the mess that's in this world today. What a picture it is that we have at this present hour as we look out at the world that really is in a mess. And we could quote, I suppose here, from many other sources, and we'll probably be inserting them later on, but I think this is enough to enforce the fact that we're living in this kind of a day. There has been, therefore, a renewed interest in prophecy. And as a result, many men who apparently showed very little interest in prophecy before have suddenly become experts in the field of prophecy. They apparently have not studied it very much, and they've come up with what Dr. Sir Robert Anderson said were the wild utterances of prophecy mongers. And it has led to some of the wildest and weirdest interpretations of Scripture that's imaginable. Why, they make the book of Revelation a mystical, fanatical, and hard-to-understand book. They're beginning to set dates, and they translate Revelation as if it is happening today or has happened recently. And believe me, friends, some of the interpretations are laughable. I could enlarge on this, but I want to say that I think one illustration will reveal how ridiculous it is, and I have used in the past others. Now, this is one man, supposed to be a Bible teacher, some time ago that listened to our program when I was teaching the book of Amos. And I mentioned in there somewhere that the Lord Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that out of Judah would the Lord Jesus come. That had been the prophecy, and he was born. And he came as the Lamb of God, but he's coming again as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this man wrote me and says, Out of Judah will be the Antichrist. You're wrong again. What does the Bible say? It says he'll come like a roaring lion. Now, where do lions come from? Well, they come from Africa. And therefore, he'll be coming out of Africa. My friend, I want to tell you, 
You can't get any farther out on a limb than that in interpreting prophecy today. And it's that type of thing that I very personally decry at this time, because actually we'll come to a book now that I want to make a startling statement at this time. And I'm sure that it'll not be agreed to by a great many. And I intend to attempt to answer all of these weird interpretations as we go along and show that the book of Revelation is one of the most sensible books in the Bible. Now, I want to make this startling statement. The book of Revelation is not a difficult book. The liberal has tried to make it that kind of book. And then even the amillennialist has attempted to say that, that it's a difficult book. It's symbolic. It's hard and difficult to understand. And, of course, some of our premillennialists are trying to demonstrate that it's a weird and wild book. Actually, it's not a difficult book. It's the most orderly book in the Bible. And there really is no reason to misunderstand it. First of all, let me say that no book of the Bible, and we'll deal with this as we go along, is as orderly as the book of Revelation. Now, this is what I mean. It divides itself, as we shall see. John puts down, he says, you're to write of the things you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will be, past, present, and future. Then you will find that the book divides itself as no other book does in a series of sevens. And each one is just as orderly as it possibly can be. And you'll find no book in the Bible that divides itself like that. And as we get into the book, we're going to demonstrate it. And then there are those that claim that all of it is symbolic. And you just really can't understand it. It's just beyond us. May I say to you that the book of Revelation is to be taken literally. And when it's a symbol, it'll be either indicated or so stated, and it will be symbolic of reality. And the reality will be more real than the symbol for the simple reason he uses a symbol to describe a reality. And that's important in fact, that's all important to follow. Now, because of this, we have no right to reach into the book of Revelation and to draw out of it some of these wonderful pictures that John gives us, and some of them actually symbolic, but symbolic of a reality, but not of a reality taking place today. Because let me say something else. And then we'll develop this later on. The book of Revelation is prophetic of the future. When it was given, all of it was prophetic. And all of it looked to the future, even beginning with the glorified, resurrected Christ. He saw him as he is today. But that was the vision he was given. And since he'd been given the vision, he was to write of that vision which was, but it's of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is today. So that the church is set before us in the figure of seven churches that actually were in existence, real churches, 
I've visited all seven of them, and I have spent many hours there, for I've visited them, some of them as many as four times, and I'd love to go back there tomorrow, because it's a very wonderful thing, and it makes these churches live for us today, to see the ruins of them and to see how John was speaking in to a local situation, but giving the history of the church. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, the church is not mentioned anymore. In fact, will not be mentioned again in the book of Revelation. Somebody says, you mean it goes out of business? Well, it leaves the earth and goes to heaven. Well, what happened to it? Well, it became the bride of Christ. And you're going to see a bride in the last part of Revelation, but not the church. She's a bride now to be presented to Christ. What a picture. And then, beginning with chapter 4, everything is definitely in the future from where we are right now. So that when anybody reaches in and tries to pull out a revelation, some vision about famine or wars or that sort of thing, my friend, it just doesn't fit today. And if we'll let John tell it like it is, and I tell you, we need to let the Bible speak like that. Just let it say what it wants to say. And this idea of drawing these weird and wild interpretations, and that's the reason I enter this book with a great deal of fear and trembling. The interesting thing to note is that prophecy is being developed today. The great doctrines of the church have been developed in certain ages. At first, it was the doctrine of the Scripture, of the Word of God. Then there was the doctrine of the person of Christ, Christology. And then the doctrine of soteriology, of salvation. And then on down. And now we're living in the day when prophecy is really being developed. And we need to be very careful of who we listen to and what we listen to. When the pilgrims sailed for America, their pastor at Leyden, that is in Holland, reminded them, and I'm quoting from him now, "...the Lord has more truth yet to break forth from his holy word. Luther and Calvin were shining lights in their times, yet they penetrated not the whole counsel of God. Be ready to receive whatever truth shall be made known to you from the written word of God." That's important. God today is not revealing new truth by giving you a vision or a dream or a new religion, but God is revealing new truth from His Word, and therefore we need to be very careful of what it is. The 20th century has witnessed, as we've indicated, a renewed interest in eschatology. Now, that's the doctrine of last things, or as the common colloquialism is, prophecy, especially since World War I. Great strides have been made in the field of prophecy during the past two decades. Indeed, new light has fallen upon this phase of Scripture. All of this attention has focused the light of deeper study on the book of Revelation. Even in this series that 
will take us three months. We are going to try to avoid the pitfalls of attempting to present something new and novel just for the sake of being different. Likewise, we shall steer clear of repeating threadbare cliches. Many works on Revelation are merely a carbon copy of other works. I have more books on Revelation in my library than I have on any other book of the Bible, and most of them just didn't need to be written because they're nothing in the world but just a Xerox copy of the one that was written before them. I say that realizing that I have two volumes on Revelation, reveling through Revelation, two volumes. Now, in the first part of Revelation, we're going to offer this one that deals with the first 12 chapters. And if you would like to have it, you'll have to send in a gift for the program. We have to make it that way because this is a book, a volume, and we do ask folk that are interested to support the program, and I don't think that's being unfair. Now, we do have notes and outlines which are much briefer, and we'll be very happy to send those to you with no charge whatsoever. And you'll need both of these, actually, as you follow us through this study. Now, there is another danger we need to avoid, and that is of thinking that the book of Revelation can be put on a chart. Now, I make that statement because I happen to have a chart myself, and I've used it before. But I'll not be using it in this study, and I'll tell you why. A chart generally is so complicated, if you get everything in it, nobody can understand it. And on the other hand, if it's too brief, or so you can't understand it, it doesn't tell you enough. That's always been my danger. I have several charts. In fact, I have them here in my briefcase today. The different ones have sent me, men, frankly, that I have great confidence in. And one of them is so complicated that you need a chart to understand his chart because it's a very complicated thing. So we'll not be using a chart, but I will attempt to simplify at different stages as we go through this book the overall picture, because the Bible opens not only on a worldview, a global view, but a universal view. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the book of Revelation is another not only global book, but universal book. It shows what God is going to do with his universe, and with his creatures. There's no book quite like this. Now, the present condition today, the failure of every great department of our contemporary culture has so failed in presenting leadership for the world that men are puzzled, and they've turned in every direction. Now, this has been going on for some time. In fact, ever since World War II, why men have been feeling like this. I'd like to continue giving you some quotations from men at the end of World War II who sensed what was coming even in our day. Dr. John R. Mott, who, after returning from a trip around the world, 
made this statement. He says, "...the most dangerous era the world has ever known." And he says, "...when I think of human tragedy as I saw it and felt it, of the Christian ideals sacrifice as they've been, the thought comes to me that God is preparing the way for some immense direct action." My friend, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. God is preparing the world for some direct action. Then Winston Churchill, before he died, said, "'Time may be short.'" And Mr. Luce, before he died, he was up in San Francisco, and you remember he was the editor of Life, Time, and Fortune magazines. He made this statement. He says that when he was a boy, the son of a Presbyterian missionary in China, he and his father often discussed the premillennial coming of Christ, and he thought that all missionaries who believed in that teaching were inclined to be fanatical. And then Mr. Luce said, and I'm quoting directly now, I wonder if there wasn't something to that position after all. Dr. Charles Beard, the American historian, said, "...all over the world the thinkers and searchers who scan the horizon of the future are attempting to assess the values of civilization and speculating about its destiny." And Dr. William Yote in The Road to Civilization said, "...the handwriting on the wall of five continents now tells us that the day of judgment is at hand." And Dr. Raymond B. Fosdick, who was president of the Rocky Foundation, said, "...to many years comes the sound of the tramp of doom. Time is short." H.G. Wells, before he died, declared, and I'm quoting him, "...this world is at the end of its tether. The end of everything we call life is at hand." And then General Douglas MacArthur said, "...we've had our last chance." And the former president, Dwight Eisenhower, said also, "...without a moral regeneration throughout the world, there's no hope for us as we're going to disappear one day in the dust of an atomic explosion." And the former president of Columbia University, Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler, said, "...the end cannot be far distant." And then the former Secretary of Defense, I think he was under the Eisenhower administration, James D. Forrestal. He said, "...in my opinion, the state of tension will continue for the rest of our lives and those of our children. It is a gloomy prospect, but the cloud is a silver lining. Our earthly lives may be cut short at any moment." by the shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, as the advent of Christ to a strife-torn world is announced for the second time. So for a long time now, men in high places have looked into the future, and the best they could have said, there's a great crisis coming. I wonder what they would say if they live in our day. Well, as a result, there has been a great turning to prophecy. And I believe that it's being developed today as it's never been before. But down through the history of the church, there actually have been four very definite systems of interpretation of prophecy based largely upon the book of Revelation. Now, I want to just mention these to pass them by, because a friend of mine several years ago, a retired minister, when I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles, gave me some typewritten notes. 
notes that he had taken out of an old commentary. And I actually do not know who wrote that commentary. I haven't got to the end of the notes yet, and I may get there before this study is over, and I'm sure I will, and I'll be able to say. But this is one of the most scholarly works on Revelation, and it goes into so much detail, and it becomes a little complicated. And of these four major divisions of interpretation, for instance, he breaks down the preterists, which I'm going to mention first, into about 20 different interpretations, so that down through the history of the church, there have been many interpretations of prophecy. But I think that we can show today that the church has largely followed what we believe is the futurist interpretation. Now, here we have first the preterist theory. And their interpretation is that all of the book of Revelation has been fulfilled in the past. It had to do with local references in John's day. It had to do with the days of either Nero or Domitian. And this view was held by Renan and most German scholars and also by Eliot. Now, it's true that the book of Revelation contains comfort. Some people don't think that when they read it, all about the bowls of wrath and the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding forth. But we're going to see it's book of Revelation is not about those things. It has another subject. But actually, it was for comfort of God's people and has been for all ages. But the interpretation of it, this type of interpretation, would mean that you just well take it out of the Bible, that it has no meaning at all for the present hour. And that viewpoint has been pretty much answered and relegated to the limbo of lost things. Now, there is the historical interpretation, and that viewpoint is that the fulfillment of the book of Revelation is going on in history. And you can just fit it into history. Well, I think that there is a certain amount of truth in that for the seven churches. But beyond that, I don't think so, and we'll see why. Then the third interpretation is known as the spiritual or historical interpretation. The spiritual historical. Now, the historical, of course, was the fulfillment of revelation is going on in history, and revelation is the prophetic history of the church all the way through, according to this theory. Now, the historical spiritual theory is a refinement of the historical theory, which was advanced, I think, first by Sir William Ramsey. This theory states that the two beasts are imperial and provincial Rome, and the point of the book is to encourage Christians. According to this theory, Revelation has been largely fulfilled, and there are spiritual lessons for the church today. Now, the system that we know today as amillennialism, for the most part, has adopted this view. It dissipates and defeats, of course, the purpose of the book. Now, I attended a seminary in my denomination in which I studied Revelation in both the Greek and English, and both from the standpoint of the amillennialists. And it was amazing 
how these things could be dissipated in the thin air by just saying, well, these are symbols. But they never were able to tell you exactly what they were symbols of. It was always a real problem to do that. fact of the matter is, you have some rather unusual interpretations that come up from that viewpoint. I'm going to be mentioning, I think, from time to time, some of the ridiculous statements mentioned there. One theory is that it referred to Martin Luther. And then another was that it was the invention of the printing press. Well, now I want to tell you, those viewpoints are pretty far apart, and yet they represent that type of interpretation. And it's something that I feel has hurt the interpretation of this book more than anything else. Now, somebody's going to say, but what interpretation do you follow? Well, the fourth and the last one is known as the Futurist. And it holds that the book of Revelation is primarily prophetic and yet future, especially from Revelation 4 on to the end of the book. Now, this is the view of all premillennialists and is the view which we accept, and it's the view that we present to you. Now, I recognize that there are many today that are tempting to not only to discount this, but they say rather harsh things about this interpretation. One recent book shown me, I understand that he quotes me in that book, as well as some very outstanding Bible expositors today, And I also understand he's just a layman. There's nothing wrong with him being a layman, but he probably ought to stay in his own field. He called me by phone. I wasn't well at the time. He called me one morning when I was busy getting ready to come down to the office, asked me a question. I didn't want to answer it, which I didn't. And I understand he makes the statement in the book that I was unable to answer his question. Well, the point was... I didn't want to answer his question. I didn't want to get involved in an argument with a man that I was convinced that was very fanatical in his position. And if he has misquoted others as he has me, then I would have no confidence in the book whatsoever, although a copy of it has been sent to me. Now, the question arises, and that's the question that book raises, that this viewpoint that we have today is something that's brand new. I'll admit it's just been really developed as all these other interpretations in the past few years. Now, when I started out as a young man, first saved, there was what is known as post-millennialism. Well, post-millennialism believes that the world would get better, the church would convert the world, and Christ would come and reign. Well, that viewpoint is pretty much dead today. You find very few that hold that viewpoint. Two world wars, a worldwide depression, and today the uncertainty and the crisis through which the world is passing, that just doesn't minister to post-millennialism. And it's pretty well gone. By the time I got to seminary at my denomination, every professor there was an amillennialist. And amillennialist means you don't believe that there is a millennium. In other words, this is where most of the post-millennialists ran to cover. Now, there was one professor there 
that still was a post-millennialist. Well, he couldn't hear. He was a very old man. And, in fact, when they told him the war was over, why, well, he thought that they meant the Civil War. He was really a back number. So he was still a post-millennialist. Well, most post-millennialists have become amillennialists. And it's like several years ago at Winona Lake, a man came up. In fact, he was a minister, and he said to the late Dr. Herbert Bieber, he says, Dr. Bieber, I'm not a premillennialist, and I'm not a postmillennialist. What do you think of that? Well, Dr. Bieber says, I think that's preposterous, by the way, and I think it is also. Now, this morning, as I'm making the tape in morning, some of you will hear it of an evening, may I say that I'd like, even at the risk of being a little tedious and monotonous, of going back and telling you the viewpoint of men in the past, that they were looking for the Christ to come. They were not looking for the Great Tribulation, and they weren't even looking for the Millennium. They were looking for Him to come, and that's the very heart of the premillennial viewpoint, by the way, as we hold it today. Now, even as far back as Barnabas, who was a co-worker with Paul, he has been quoted as saying, "...the truth Sabbath is the 1,000 years when Christ come back to reign." Clement, in 96 A.D., he was bishop of Rome, he says, "...let us every hour expect the kingdom of God we know not the day. Polycarp, in 108 A.D., he was bishop of Smyrna and was burned at the stake there. He says, He'll raise us from the dead. We shall reign with him. Ignatius, who was bishop of Antioch, and the historian Eusebius says, was the apostle Peter's successor. He says, Consider the times and expect him. Papius, in 116 A.D., was bishop of Hierapolis, whom Irenaeus said, saw and heard John. He says there will be 1,000 years when the reign of Christ personally will be established on earth. And Justin Martyr in 150 A.D. said, I and all others who are Orthodox Christians on all points know there will be a 1,000 years in Jerusalem, as Isaiah and Ezekiel declare. And then Irenaeus in 175 A.D., he says that this can only be fulfilled upon our Lord's personal return to the earth. And that was the kingdom. And when the Lord said he'd drink anew of the wine in the kingdom. Tertullian in 200 A.D. said, "...we do indeed confess that a kingdom is promised on earth." And you can go on down. Martin Luther said, "...let us not think that the coming of Christ is far off." Calvin, in his third book of the Institutes, he says, "...Scripture uniformly enjoins us to look with expectation for the advent of Christ." And Canon Fawcett said this, "...the early Christian fathers, Clement, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, 
Look for the Lord's speedy return as the necessary precursor of the millennial kingdom. Not until the professing church lost her first love and became the harlot resting on the world power did she cease to be the bride going forth to meet the bridegroom and seek to reign already on earth without waiting for his advent. And then Dr. Eliot wrote, "...all primitive expositors except Origen and the few who reject Revelation were premillennial, and Gussler's work on church history." He says, "...it was so distinctly and prominently mentioned that we do not hesitate in regarding it as the general belief of that age." And Chillingworth declared, "...it was the doctrine believed and taught by the most eminent fathers of the age next to the apostles, but none of that age condemned." Dr. Adolf Harnack wrote, "...the earlier fathers, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Tertullian, believed it because it was part of the tradition of the early church." It is the same all through the fourth centuries with those Latin theologians who escaped the influence of Greek speculation. May I say to you, when anyone says that this is something that was originated a hundred years ago by some old witch in England, my friend, you don't know what you're talking about. And after all, what does the Bible say? That's the important thing. I tried to the only answer I gave that. I said, I'm not interested in what some old witch said a hundred years ago. What does Paul say? What does the Lord Jesus say? What does the Word of God say? That's the important thing. What's interesting to note, is it not, that this was the belief of these men. Now, I'd like to mention some of the striking and singular features about the book of Revelation. First of all, and I have these in my book on Revelation, number one is it's the only prophetic book in the New Testament. There are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament, just one in the New. And then the second thing is the writer, John, he reaches farther back into eternity past than any other writer in history. That's in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we move up to the time of creation. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, in the book of Revelation, He reaches farther on into eternity than any other book. In fact, that's where He goes at the end, right into eternity future the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's a glorious picture, by the way, sadly neglected or abused today. Now, the third very special feature about this book, there is a special blessing that is promised to the readers of this book. You notice in Revelation 1-3, it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. It's a blessing promised. Now, also, there is a warning given at the end of the book. Over in the 22nd chapter, verse 18 and 19, 
For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, that ought to make these wild and weird interpreters of prophecy today, they ought to stop looking listen. It's dangerous today to just say anything relative to the book of Revelation because of the fact that people realize that we've come to a great crisis in history. And then to say something that's entirely out of line, it's to mislead. But the unfortunate thing, the most popular prophetic teachers today are those that have gone out on a limb. And it has raised, I think, a very serious problem. And later on, we'll have the repercussions from it. Now, the fourth very remarkable thing about the book of Revelation is it's not a sealed book. Now, you remember, Daniel was told to seal the book until the time of the end. But here in the book of Revelation, John is told in 22nd chapter, verse 10, "...and he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand." And I disagree with these, and especially the liberal today, likes to say, well, the book of Revelation, it's a mumbo-jumbo book. You can't make heads or tails out of it, and you can't understand it. Well, that is to contradict what the Lord Jesus says, that it's not a sealed book. And as we said before, it is probably the best organized book that's in the Bible. Now, the fifth rather remarkable thing about this book is it is a series of visions expressed in symbols that deal with reality. And the literal interpretation is always preferred unless John makes it clear to us that it is otherwise. Now we come to the sixth and the last remarkable feature about this book. Very striking indeed. And it's, in one sense, more important. This book is like a great union station where the great trunk lines of prophecy come in from other portions of Scripture. Revelation does not originate, nor does it begin anything, but it consummates and concludes that which is begun somewhere else. It is imperative. Therefore, to a right understanding of the book, to be able to trace each great subject of prophecy from the first reference to the terminal. And there are ten great subjects of prophecy which find their consummation here. And that's the reason a knowledge of the rest of the Bible is imperative to an understanding of Revelation. Someone has figured this out. I haven't checked it and don't intend to. But here is what has been given me, that out of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 contain references to the Old Testament. In other words, over half of this book depends on your understanding the Old Testament. It's calculated that there are over 500 references 
or allusions to the Old Testament in Revelation. Now, the books that are more prominently quoted are Psalms, Daniel, Zechariah. Remember when we studied Zechariah, I told you how important it would be for Revelation. And Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, and the rest of them, by the way. It makes it a very marvelous and remarkable book. Now, what are these ten great subjects? And to be able to see them, let me bring this up to date. When I wrote this, I was traveling by train. And train travel was more popular then than plane travel. And I used the Union Station of a railroad. And now you could use the airport or air terminal for the airlines. Let me bring it up to date then. Let's go out to the international airport here in Los Angeles. And you could do that in any of the great airports across the country. Here comes in a plane. It comes all the way from Japan. The people there are Japanese. Maybe if you didn't know or had never seen a Japanese, you'd be interested in taking a good look at them. And you'd say, my, wonder where they came from. And you'd notice that many of them were wearing a different garb than we wear. And you would have quite a few questions you'd want to know about. And you'd need to know where they came from to understand that airplane unloading and the people getting out. Now, here comes an airplane out of New York City. It's filled with businessmen. And they are all dressed up, and they hit the pavement running with a briefcase after more business. Well, you've got to understand where they came from. And then here comes one in from Houston, Texas. They're all oil men, all very rich, each one carrying him a gallon of oil, make sure he makes it through the day. Well, you need to know where they've come from. And then here comes a plane out of South America. And again, they're speaking a tongue you don't understand, but you need to know where it's come from. Now, the book of Revelation is an airport, and there are ten great airlines that come in to this airport. And you need to understand where it began and how it was developed as it comes into the book of Revelation. That's important for us to know. Now, let me just mention these, and I'll be taking them up as we come to them. The Lord Jesus Christ is number one. Now, I'm not going to develop that today, but he's the subject of the book, not the beast, but the sin bearer, the Lord Jesus. He's the subject of this book. Don't get your eyes off of him on bowls of wrath, because you'll miss the book if you do. Now, we begin with him way back in Genesis 3.15, a seed of the woman. And then number two is the church. And you find that where the church begins, not in the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus mentioned it the first time in Matthew 16.18 when he said, "...on this rock I will build my church." And then you have the resurrection and translation of the saints. That's the third great subject. And that's over in John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, 
And there are other passages, and I'll be referring to that when we get to it. Now, the fourth is the Great Tribulation. began way back in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, when God said that His people would be in tribulation. And then, Satan and evil. Where did he begin? Well, we have that back in Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. I'll deal with that when we get to it. Then the sixth is the man of sin. And again, back in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. Then you have the seventh, the course and end of apostate Christendom. And you have that given to us in Matthew 13. And Daniel had something to say about this world condition. And then we see the end of it here. Then the eighth great trunk line of prophecy, the airplane of prophecy that's coming into the airport here, is the beginning, the course, and end of the times of the Gentiles. Lord Jesus said Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then the ninth great airplane of prophecy is the second coming of Christ. And we have that given here in a great deal of detail. And then number 10, Israel's covenants, beginning with the covenant God made with Abraham back in the 12th chapter of Genesis. And five things that God promised Israel, and God says here He's going to make all of them good, <laughs> and just as He'll make the promise that He's made for us. Now, friends, again, we've spent the entire time on the great theme of an introduction, and that's important for this book. I trust that you'll see the importance of that as we get into the text of it, and I promise you next time we're going to get our foot in the door of this book because, very frankly, I just can't wait to get in this book. It's a great one, but it does need to be handled properly today. And I trust that we'll be able to do that. You pray for us. We need the Spirit of God to guide us, especially in this book, because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's only the Spirit of God, as the Lord Jesus said, He'll take the things of mine and show them unto us. Now, I want to mention this. In our notes and outlines we send out, we have a little chart. It's a very simple chart. And it's in our book on Revelation. And it's in our book, Briefing the Bible. I consider this very important. It begins with the cross of Christ and His ascension. And in chapter 1, we see the glorified Christ here in Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, we see the church. And in chapters 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. And then there takes place on the earth the Great Tribulation period, chapters 6 through 18. Chapter 19, he comes to earth again. And he establishes kingdom, and you have in the 20th chapter of Revelation the thousand-year reign of Christ. Then the great white throne is set up, and there's where the lost are judged. And then eternity begins. That's the book of Revelation. Now, is that the way that it's given to us? That is very important, by the way. And John wrote this book on the Isle of Patmos approximately, well, approximately around 96 A.D. 
or 95, somewhere in that time. It was when Domitian was on the throne. But Stauffer puts it like this. He says, Domitian was also the first emperor to wage a proper campaign against Christ. And the church answered the attack under the leadership of Christ's last apostle, John of the Apocalypse. Nero had Paul and Peter destroyed, but he looked upon them as seditious Jews. Domitian was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement there stood an enigmatic figure who threatened the glory of the empress. He was the first to declare war on this figure and the first also to lose the war of foretaste of things to come. That's very important. Now, the one thing before we give you the division of this book is to give you the subject of the book. And I want to put this down. It's so important to see. And I'd like very much to emphasize it and to reemphasize it. And in order to do that, I'm going to turn to the first verse of Revelation. Let me read it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. I want us to keep this in mind, that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, you have the days of his flesh. You do not have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. You see him there in humiliation. Here you see him in glory. You see him in charge of everything that takes place. He's in full command here in the book of Revelation. And this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And Snell put it like this, and I'd like to give you this quotation from him. He says, "...in the Revelation the Lamb is the center around which all else is clustered, the foundation on which everything lasting is built, the nail on which all hangs, the object to which all points." and the spring from which all blessing proceeds. The Lamb is the light, the glory, the life, the Lord of heaven and earth, from whose face all defilement must flee away, and in whose presence fullness of joy is known. Hence, we cannot go far in the study of the Revelation without seeing the Lamb, like direction posts along the road, to remind us that he who did by himself purge our sins is now highly exalted, and that to him every knee must bow and every tongue confess. And my friends, to that grand statement, I say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lamb is going to reign on this earth. That's God's intention. That's God's purpose. Now, we have said that the book of Revelation actually is not really a difficult book, that it divides itself very easily. Well, it certainly does. If you will read the 18th and the 19th verses of this first chapter, 
John will divide it for you. This is one book. You don't have to work in trying to make a division of it. John does it all for us here. He says in verse 18, the Lord Jesus now is speaking as the glorified Christ. I am he that liveth. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. And four grand statements are made concerning him. He said, I'm alive. I was dead. And then he says, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And then he says, and I have the keys of hell, that is, of grave and of death. Now, John is told to write. Now, here is going to be his outline. He gives it to us. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, friends, this is a wonderful, grand division that he's given to us here. In fact, there's nothing that's quite like it. First, he says, here I am he that liveth. He says, the things which thou hast seen. That's the Son of Man in heaven. That's Christ in glory. That's chapter 1 of Revelation. Then you have, he says here, Behold, I'm alive. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive. He says, write the things which are. Now, you're going to see that the living Christ is very busy doing something today. Do you know that he's the head of the church today? You know the reason the church is in the mess that it is today? The church is like a body that's been decapitated. It's no longer in touch with the head of the church. And you have that outline given in seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. That is the things that are present. The things that are past was that vision of the glorified Christ. Now, beginning with chapter 4 through 22, it's future. He says, you are to write the things about to be after these things. And that's very important. The Greek metatauta, after these things. What things? After the church things. So that beginning with chapter 4, you're dealing with things that are going to take place after the church leaves the earth. And that is the great fallacy of the hour of reaching over into the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 4, and trying to pull those things up to the present. And that's the reason we have all of this wild and weird interpretation today. Why don't we follow what John tells us? He says, here's my outline. Now, he says, follow it. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which are going to be metatauta, after these things. And John's going to let you know when he gets to metatauta. He's going to begin chapter 4, the things after these things, so that you can't miss it unless you've got a system of interpretation that just won't fit in at the book of Revelation. And if it doesn't, then you're going to have your problem. Now, we must keep in mind the Lord Jesus Christ is back of everything that takes place in this book. He's in full charge. He's the glorified Christ. Oh, that you and I might see him today. Now, I have attempted to give certain divisions of this book in many different ways. I've divided it into the division John has given us. 
and in chapter 1, the person of Jesus Christ, Christ in glory. Then chapters 2 and 3, the possession, not first the person of Jesus Christ, then the possession of Jesus Christ. That's his church. That's his church. That he loved the church. He gave himself for it, that it might be his. And then you have in chapters 2 and 3, the church, but it's his church. And then the program of Jesus Christ, the scene in heaven, chapters 4 through 22, that's the consummation of all things on this earth. That's the thing that makes this book here such a glorious, wonderful book, if you please. When we finished the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, we attempted to tie it into the book of Revelation because we believe there was that tie-in there as the Old Testament and Malachi closes with the Son of Righteousness yet to rise. It holds out a hope for a cursed earth and where the curse of sin is, that he's coming to the earth. And the book of Revelation closes with the bright and morning star and an invitation to the church. Well, the fact of the matter is that's the hope of the church, is the rapture. And the hope of the Old Testament is the Revelation. Now, this book will complete the Revelation. But I want to tie in today the book of Revelation with Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The first book and the last book of the Bible. Genesis presents the beginning, and Revelation presents the end. We find all is contrast here. The earth is created in Genesis. In Revelation, the earth passed away. In Genesis, Satan's first rebellion. In Revelation, Satan's last rebellion. In Genesis, the sun, moon, and stars for earth's government. And in Revelation, these same heavenly bodies are for earth's judgment. And in Genesis, the sun was to govern the day. In Revelation, there's no need of the sun. In Genesis, darkness was called night. In Revelation, there's no night there. In Genesis, the waters are called seas. In Revelation, there's no more seas. In Genesis, we have the entrance of sin. In Revelation, the exodus of sin. In Genesis, a curse is pronounced. In Revelation, the curse is removed. In Genesis, death enters. In Revelation, there's no more death. In Genesis, sorrow and suffering. And in Revelation, no more sorrow and no more tears. In Genesis, we have the marriage of the first Adam. In Revelation, the marriage of the last Adam. In Genesis, we see man's city, Babylon. In Revelation, we see man's city, Babylon, destroyed and God's city brought into view, the new Jerusalem. In Genesis, we have the doom of Satan pronounced, and here in Revelation, his doom executed. We last time attempted to call your attention to the outline of this book, and that John actually outlines it for us. He was told to write the things which thou hast seen, that's the past, and the things which are, and that's church things, that's in Revelation 2 and 3. 
and then we have the things which shall be hereafter, or metatata, after these things. And those are the things that concern the future, so that when we're dealing with the church in Revelation 2 and 3, we're dealing with present-day things. But when you come to chapter 4, everything is future from there on. Now we are in this first division where we see the person of Jesus Christ. And it's Christ in glory and the revelation of him in all of his position and glory as the great high priest who's in charge of his church. He's very busy today. We'll see that when we get to it. Then he is in absolute control from here on. In the Gospels, we find him meek and lowly and humble, and that he died upon a cross. He made himself subject to his enemies down here. But you don't find that in the book of Revelation. He is in control. He's still the Lamb of God, as we see, but he's the kind of a lamb that can speak of the wrath of the Lamb, and it terrifies the earth. That's when his judgments begin upon the earth. Now, we have here the person of Jesus Christ, and he's the theme of this book. He's directing everything. When the scene moves to heaven, we see him moving there, controlling everything. Now, the major theme of the entire Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are both theocentric and Christocentric. That means they're God-centered and Christ-centered. And since Christ is God, he is the one who fills the horizon of the total Word of God. And this needs to be kept in mind in a special way in the book of Revelation more than any other book of the Bible, even more than the Gospels. The Bible tells what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And the book of Revelation emphasizes what he is doing and what he will do. And we need to keep that in mind. Now, as we come to verse 1, we have the title of the book. And I'm going to read my own translation that I have in my book on Revelation. And you'll find that many of these verses, in fact, most of it, I'll give you my translation. It's not that I think it's better, because I don't. And it's not that I recommend it, because I don't recommend it. Here in Southern California, for years, we've call my translation the Magiacus Ad Absurdum Translation. And I would not defend it if anybody made an attack upon it. All I attempt to do is just lift out the Greek and get at what John is saying here in the book of Revelation and try to couch it into the language that is maybe a little bit more literal. That is for our understanding today. Let me read now verse 1 with that thought in mind. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show unto his bondservants things which must shortly come to pass completely. And he sent and signified, that is, he gave a sign of it by his angel or messenger to his servant John. Now, the word revelation here, and I hope that 
you won't really show your lack of knowledge of the book of Revelation, but calling it the book of Revelations. A man came down to me when I was pastoring downtown Los Angeles. He was a retired preacher, and he made an attack upon my interpretation of the book of Revelation. And he says, you just don't know anything about Revelations. And he gave plural. And I said, brother, you know what you're talking about? You're absolutely accurate. I know nothing about the book of Revelations. And I said, I'd never really seen that book. And he was astounded, and he was really embarrassed when he found out later on that you didn't use the plural here. And we need to be careful, because it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is absolutely something that's brand new. You remember Daniel was told to seal the book. At the end of the book of Revelation, we'll find out, don't seal it. John is told not to seal it. These things are things that are to be understood. And you remember that the Lord gave in Matthew 13 what's known as the mystery parables. And very frankly, to the majority of the church today, there's still a mystery. But our Lord put it like this in Mark, the fourth chapter, at verse 11. And he said unto them, that is the Lord Jesus, unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Here you have the unveiling of the glorified Christ in all of his beauty and power and glory. You only have the half story when you read the Gospels. You need the book of Revelation. It is the consummation of it. And it can only be understood if the Spirit of God is our teacher. And we want to make sure of that. This book takes off the veil that you can see him in his unveiled glory. This book here is the opposite of secrets or a mystery. Here you have a disclosure of secrets, and it's called prophecy. Here in verse 2, you notice, the wraps of Christendom were put on in Matthew 13, and the world doesn't understand. When anyone today, especially a so-called Christian, it says, I don't understand Revelation. It makes you wonder, because this is the book the Lord Jesus said, it's given to you to understand these mysteries of the kingdom of God. And he made that very clear. Now, we have here this very wonderful book, and it says here that it is an apocalypse, an unveiling. And it says here to show unto his servants. Now, that means by word pictures, by symbols, by direct and indirect representations. And it says that he signified it. That is, symbols are symbolic of reality. And we need to keep this very much in mind. You remember Peter gave us a great rule for the interpretation of prophecy. And it's found over in Second Peter, the first chapter, and verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. You don't interpret it by itself. 
And even the figurative language of Revelation is figurative of fact. And we need to keep that in mind. A symbol is a symbol of something that is real. And he says here, of the things which must shortly come to pass. Now, the things, that reveals that they are not ethereal and ephemeral dream stuff. There is a hard core of real facts in this book. Well, what are things? Well, we kept our little grandson, Ms. McGee and I did, and we let him play in the den. And we have a bunch of toys for him there anytime he comes. And he got all of his things out. And that's what he calls them, his things. And he had them spread all over the den. Well, we are rather indulgent to the little fellow. We didn't make him pick up his toys afterward, and we didn't pick them up either. And so that night, I walked through the den. And I want to say that I stepped on things, his things. I stumbled on them, and I took a tumble on them. And you could say that things are symbols, but you just don't take a tumble on a symbol. It's hard stuff, friends. It's reality. And any time John uses a symbol, he'll make it clear to you. And you can be sure that he's using a symbol because the reality is far greater than the symbol is. And the symbol is a poor representation of the reality. That is the important thing. Now he says that it must shortly come to pass. And that word must has in it an urgent necessity, but an absolute certainty. It must shortly. Now this word shortly here has in it something that I think it's very important for us to note. It's a word that occurs quite a few times in the Scripture. For instance, we have it in Luke 18th chapter, verse 8. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Now, there's that same word, and it's translated, he'll avenge them speedily. Well, what does that mean? He means that when the vengeance begins, it's going to take place hurriedly. There'll be no waiting around for it at all. And that implies he's not coming soon. And we'll see that later. It doesn't mean that this is going to happen soon. But when these things that he's talking about begin to happen, it'll all happen speedily, shortly. It'll take place in a brief period of time. And then he says the way that this has come about. And I want you to notice that. He says that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. Now, notice the steps of Revelation here. It originated with God the Father, and it was given to Jesus Christ, and he gave it to his angel, and his angel gave it to his servants that they might know what was coming to pass. So that this is the way it came down. From God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ to the angel, from the angel to John, and from John to his servants. And that is the way it gets to you and me today. These are the steps of Revelation. And I probably ought to answer this as we go along. Someone says, 
Well, you painted yourself into a corner, preacher, because you said an angel was not connected with the church. I still say that. The angel here, I think, is a heavenly messenger. But what is John going to talk about here most of all? Future things. What Jesus is going to do in the future. And beginning with chapter 4, everything is future, and it takes place after the church leaves the world. So it's very proper here that after the church leaves that we see angels coming back into prominence. So that is true to the way the book moves. Now we have in verse 2 the method of revelation. Who bore witness of the word of God and of the testimony are the witness of Jesus Christ, even as many things as he saw. There's an emphasis that we should put here that he bore witness, and this in the Greek is epistolary aorist which means John moves himself up to where his readers are, where you and I are today. And he looks back at what he's writing, who bore witness of the Word of God. And the Word of God here, I think, refers to both Christ and to the contents of this book. He is the living Word, and we have the written Word. And when the written Word reveals him to us, it's the living Word. You may be sure of that. Now, we're told here that it is witness rather than testimony, and I do like that better. And it occurs 90 times in the writings of John, 50 times in his gospel, by the way. And it says that he saw. That is, he was an eyewitness. And going back to the word signify in verse 1, he signified it. He made pictures of it. This is television, friends. This is the first television program that was ever put on. And that was the one that the Lord Jesus Christ put on from heaven through his angel, through John, to you and to me today. That's the way that he wants it. And here's a television program you might do well to take a look at. Because we read also here in verse 2, "...even as the things which he saw." In other words, John was an eyewitness of the vision here, and he not only heard, but he saw. These are the two avenues through which we get most of our information. And I sometimes wonder if maybe he didn't smell just a little, because the parts of these books, I think you could catch the odor of it also. And maybe John did that. Now notice as we come down to verse 3, here is the threefold blessing. In other words, this is the first of seven Beatitudes in this book. And we will be dealing with these seven Beatitudes as we come to them. Here's the first one. Blessed is he that readeth. And that means the reader in the church or the teacher. He that reads, and they that hear the words of the prophecy. That means the church, the believers that are in the class or in the church. The reader reads it. They hear it. And both of them are to keep it. Blessed is he that readeth, they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. So the threefold blessing here is reading, hearing, and keeping. And that's important for us today. And I believe that every one of us that go through the book of Revelation are going to get a special blessing. I really believe that, because that's what he says. And he says, for the time is at hand. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the things that are mentioned at the end of the book are happening today, but it means that the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost began this movement of the Lord Jesus' ministry in heaven. We're going to see the vision of him here the next two or three times that we have here together. We get a vision of the glorified Christ, and then we see what he's doing today. And that moves right on into the future. So the time was at hand. When we come to verse 4, we come here to the greetings from John the writer and from Jesus Christ in heaven. My, this is tremendous. This is a greeting that comes from John down here and from the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Now he tells us, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. I'm going into that when we get to chapter 2. But I do want to say this about the number seven. The number seven does not mean perfection. It means completeness, and there's a difference, certainly a distinction. And that is, you have here the seven churches, and there were literally hundreds of churches in that area, and any seven could have been chosen. These were chosen for a very definite purpose, which we're going to see. And they are representative of the total church throughout all the ages, the churches on earth. He says, grace to you. And this is a book that reveals the grace of God and peace. And you don't need to be frightened to study the book. You can have the peace of God in your heart. And the one which is, which was, which is to come, this is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's the division of the book, what he has done, what he is doing, what he's going to do. And the seven spirits reveal the Holy Spirit of God. Now today, I want to read from Revelation 1 beginning at verse 4, and I'm reading from the giant print through the Bible, Bible. And if you have the right Bible, all you'll have to do is to turn to page 1808. I'm reading, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that's called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Now we've come here to this particular section, Revelation 1-4. And if you are following our outline, you'll notice that we are emphasizing here in this first chapter the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to see him as Christ in glory. Now, from verses 4 through 8, we have greetings from John the writer and from the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And it's a very wonderful greeting. Now, notice again verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, Asia encompassed a great deal of what we call Asia Minor today. Then he says, "...grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne." Now, you'll notice that John puts no title connected with his name, and he also does not attempt to identify himself other than by the name John. In other words, I have a notion John was well known to these seven churches. He had been pastor of the church in Ephesus and apparently had oversight over all of the churches in that area. Now, we are told here, and it's used now for the first time, it's to the seven churches and we have the seven spirits. Now, I want to enlarge on that again today because it's rather important. The number seven, it has a religious meaning in the Word of God and to the people of God in John's day that is totally foreign to us today. In other words, we do not attach any religious significance to numbers. We're not accustomed to do that. The world outside pays a great deal of attention to numbers. It's certainly used in gambling. But here in the Word of God, the number seven was a sacred number. And I want to bear down on this. It does not mean perfection. The significance of it was that it denoted completeness. Now, sometimes completeness is perfection, but not always. But when he uses the number seven, he's speaking of that which is complete and that which is representative. Now, the number seven here, and we'll go into that in a very definite way as we move along, because that is the key number to this book. And it did have, in a very particular way, it had to do with God's covenant dealings with Israel. The Sabbath, for instance, the seventh day, and circumcision and worship, all are hinged around the seventh day. Now, you'll notice as you go through the Word of God that Jericho was compassed about seven times. And then he went around seven times on the last day, but seven days. And Naaman dipped seven times in the Jordan. He was instructed to do that. 
And you'll find constant references to it, which we'll not turn to now. But there were seven years of plenty, seven years of famine in Joseph's time down in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar was insane for seven years. There are seven Beatitudes in the New Testament. There are seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. There are seven parables in Matthew 13. And there were seven loaves which fed the multitude. And Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. You can't just ignore that number as being accidental. But when you come to the book of Revelation, the number seven sticks out like a sore thumb so that even a casual reader could not bypass it at all. Now, he says here, the seven churches that were in Asia. Now, weren't the other churches there? Well, we know that there were churches at Colossae and Miletus and Hierapolis and Troas and many other places. In fact, I have spent the night at Hierapolis, and I have been there several times. It's about 10 miles from the ruins of Laodicea. Hierapolis is still a place. There's two or three motels there and a store or two. And the ruins in Hierapolis are absolutely magnificent, and they're quite significant. And it reveals what a tremendous place it was, whereas Laodicea ruins are under a wild oak field for the most part. And it actually has not been excavated, and it's not very impressive to tell the truth. And why didn't he use Hierapolis even if he was going to use Laodicea? Well, because it just happens to be that the number seven is the number of completeness. And when he took seven, it meant that he's giving you the complete history of the church and that these are representative churches. And we'll see that when we get to it. Now, Asia here refers to the provinces of Lydia, Mysia, Caria, parts of Phrygia. And it doesn't mean the continent of Asia, nor does it mean all of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is a term that wasn't used until the 4th century A.D. But it takes in a great area of Asia Minor, especially that that was along the coast. Now he says here, grace and peace, you notice. And we've mentioned that before, but grace is charis, and that was the Greek form of greeting. And peace is shalom, the Hebrew form of greeting. In other words, in grace you have the Gentile form, and here the Hebrew, peace. In other words, peace flows from grace, and grace is the source of all of our blessings today. And it's from Him and the seven spirits. In other words, the Trinity is brought before us in this particular section, as we see the Lord Jesus mentioned in the next verse. Now, seven spirits refer to the Holy Spirit, and I think actually refers to the seven branches of the lampstand, which we're going to see. Those seven lights on it, seven lamps, giving light, represent the Holy Spirit of God. Now let me read verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, 
and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, Jesus Christ refers to God the Son here. So, you see, we have had the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits, and from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That refers to God the Father, we believe. So that the Trinity is mentioned here now. And from Jesus Christ, he's the faithful witness, and he's the first begotten of the dead. Now, we have here these titles that are given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is, there are seven titles here. First of all, he's the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is the only trustworthy witness to the facts of this book. He's the one. And he is the only trustworthy witness for you and me today. It's difficult to believe other people, but we can believe the Lord Jesus. And the facts here are about him, and he testifies here of himself. Now, will you notice, the second is, he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, firstborn in the Greek is prototokos, and that has to do to his resurrection, as you can see. He is the firstborn from the dead. He was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. And this is a rather marvelous picture that you have here. Death was a womb which bore him. He came out of death in life. And in other words, the tomb was a womb as far as he was concerned. Now, he's the only one back from the dead in a glorified body. No one else has come that route yet. But his own are to follow him in resurrection. And the rapture will be next, and then the revelation when he comes to the earth. And that'll be mentioned here. Now, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That speaks of his ultimate position during the millennium, when every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that he's the Lord. Now, the fourth title that we have here, a method of identification, a sevenfold identification, the fourth is unto him that loves. It's in the present tense, and it emphasizes his constant attitude toward his own. Now, this book ought not to frighten you too much because of the fact it's from the one who loves us. And he didn't just love us when he died on the cross, although that's true, but he loves us today. Right this moment, Jesus loves you. And the fifth, he loosed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, today, unfortunately, there are many... I probably shouldn't say many, because as far as I know, there are only a few, even good men today, that are, to my judgment, making light of the blood of God. And the important thing is that the blood of Christ is very important. It's not just a symbol. You remember, God taught his people in the Old Testament, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar. Now, when Christ shed his blood, and I think every drop came out of his body, he gave that for you and for me. What did he give? His life, if you please. 
very frankly, I'm not inclined to belittle the blood of Christ. And I still like to sing the song, only I don't sing, but I like for the song to be sung, and I like to listen to it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And Peter wrote, "...for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot." And because of that, Paul could write to a young preacher, Timothy, and say, "...there's one God." and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he's that because he shed his blood for me. He loosed us from our sins in his own blood. What a wonderful, glorious thing. Now, when we come to verse 6 here, "...and he hath made us kings and priests." unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Well, now we come to the sixth thing, and I must change this here. He hath made us a kingdom of priests unto his God and Father. Now, believers are never called kings. And frankly, I don't get wrought up over this song that has been so popular. The king is coming. No, when the king comes, he's coming to the earth. He's going to put down all unrighteousness. We're going to see the attitude toward his coming. But when he comes, for me, he's coming as my Savior. He comes as the bridegroom for his bride, the church that he loved and gave himself for He's coming, the one who is the lover of my soul. And I just don't get wrought up over the king is coming. Now, if you want to get wrought up, that's your business. You get wrought up. But believers are not called kings. And our relationship to him is he's our Lord, but he's first of all our Savior. But here it means that we're a kingdom of priests and we're going to reign with him. Now, he says here, unto God and his Father. Why didn't he say our Father? Because of the fact he is his Father in a sense that he is not our Father. You see, that's his position in the Trinity. We become sons of God through regeneration, being born from above. It's a relationship he has in the Trinity. We become sons by accepting him as Savior. Now, the seventh thing, it says, "...to him the glory and the dominion unto the ages of the ages." And that's emphasizing eternity. Amen. How wonderful here. Now, amen here, he is the amen. We saw in Isaiah, that's the title for him. Jesus Christ is both the subject and the object of this book. He's the mover of all events, and all events move toward him. He is the far-off eternal purpose in everything. All things 
were not only made by him, but all things were made for him. And this universe exists for him. Now, will you notice verse 7? It says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. Now, what does it mean by those that pierced him? They're dead. But it means the nation, Israel, and then, and all kindreds of the earth. And that means all the Gentiles. And are they going to be delighted? No. They shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Amen again. That's his name. He's going to put the finishing touches on everything. Now, behold, he cometh with clouds. That denotes the personal and physical coming of Christ. And when it says, every eye shall see him, it will be a physical and bodily appearance and appeal to the eye gate. Now, as far as we know, when he takes the church out of the world, he doesn't appear to everyone. I don't believe in a secret rapture, as some have attempted to describe it and then attempt to discount it. My feeling is that the rapture, he doesn't come to the earth. He take, We're to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. If he's coming to the earth, there's no point of being caught up in the air. Now, every eye shall see him. Now, the emphasis in the book of Revelation is going to be upon his coming to this earth to establish his kingdom. And that's the reference that is here. And we're told that all the tribes of the earth shall beat their breasts because of him. Now, this is going to be the reaction of all Christ's rejectors. You see, the world won't want to see him. The word amen actually means faithful. He's going to do it, friends. This is something he's not going to change his mind about. He's faithful. Now he says here in verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Now he's Alpha and Omega. And this is quite remarkable in the Greek language here. The Greek text, the Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And from the alphabet you make words, and he's called the Word of God. And he's the full revelation and the intelligent communication of God. He's the only alphabet that you can use to reach God, my friend. The only language God talks and understands is the language where Jesus is the Alpha and Omega and all the letters between. He is the A and the Z, and he's the ABC. So if you're going to get through to him, you will have to come through Jesus Christ. And the emphasis is here, actually, upon the beginning and the end. The Omega is not spelled out as is the Alpha. Now, the Alpha is spelled out. Why? He's the beginning. That's already filled up. The omega, the ending's not been filled up yet, so he didn't spell that out. And to me, that's quite remarkable. The ending is not yet complete. He's going to complete God's program. Now, the beginning and the ending refers to the eternity of the Son and his immutability. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that doesn't mean when you say he's the same that he's walking over yonder by the Sea of Galilee today. He's not. 
And it doesn't mean he's out there in a boat with his apostles. He's not. But it means in his attributes, he is the same. He is not changed. He is immutable. Now, we are told here that since he's the beginning and the ending, he encompasses all time and eternity. And it says, saith the Lord, the God, is an affirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, that is, at the present time, the glorified Christ which was past time, the first coming of Christ as Savior, and which is to come the future time, the second coming of Christ as the sovereign to this earth. Now, that takes in here this very remarkable section, greetings from John the writer and also from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says he loves us. Now, let's not be afraid of anything that is to follow Now, will you listen? Verse 9, he says, I, John. (laughs) That I, John, is used, I think, probably three times in this book of Revelation, and the other two are at the end of the book, and we'll pick that up later on. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion, in tribulation, in trouble. Not the great tribulation, but in trouble. And John was in trouble. You see, Domitian, the Roman emperor, had put him in prison on the Isle of Patmos. I tell you, he was active in the church in Ephesus, and he had supervision of all the churches, and he was teaching the Word of God. And you get in trouble when you teach all the Word of God. I, John, who also am your brother, and I'm your companion in trouble. You're in trouble? Well, John knew all about trouble, and the early church did. And what's coming to you and me is not new at all. And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to change that up just a little and read it. I, John, who am your brother and partaker with you in the persecution, for Christ's sake, and kingdom and patience in Jesus, I found myself in the isle called Patmos because of or on the count of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. Now, John, as we've said, he's not referring to the great tribulation but to the persecution that was already befalling believers. And the kingdom here refers to the present state of the kingdom. And by virtue of the new birth, which places a sinner in Christ, he's likewise brought into the kingdom of God. And this is not the millennial kingdom. It hasn't been established yet, which Christ is going to institute at his coming. Someone has said... We are living today in the kingdom and patience. And the patience is where the emphasis is. John explains the reason that was on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled there from about 86 to 96 A.D. It's a rugged, volcanic island off the coast of Asia Minor. It's about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. And Jesus, do you notice, is the name used by John in his gospel and also in the apocalypse. When he wants to bring glory to him, he calls him Jesus. 
and then he lifts them to the skies. I hope we can do that. Now, the great vision that was given John on the Isle of Patmos, and this first vision was a vision of the glorified Christ, the post-incarnate Christ in a glorified body, judging his church. In other words, we see the great high priest in the holy of holies. Now, John began, you remember, by saying that this vision was given to him on the Isle of Patmos. Domitian, one of the most brutal of the Roman emperors, had exiled him here to this island. This was the place where the Roman government sent prisoners, and John was put out there. Now, this vision was given to him there. 